Well, please turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. If you'd read along silently as I read aloud from verses 43 through 54. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This morning we'll examine four responses to the Savior so that we will not simply believe his word, but trust him with our lives and with our family's lives. That's really the idea in this text, that as we look at it together, we're going to see four responses to the Savior. And I want us to do that so that you and I will individually and collectively grow in our willingness not only to believe God's word, but to respond trustingly, to respond in such a way that displays an ultimate and really exclusive hope in Jesus himself. Point number one, point number one, I want you to see a dishonorable welcome of the Savior's arrival. Really, there's a disingenuous response on the part of those who first received Jesus. I know it doesn't look like that when you just read the text. As we look closely at it, I think you'll see this is for certain the case. Our text says, After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. In Matthew 13, verse 53, you really see this in fullness. People that looked at Jesus who knew him had little honor for him. Rest assured, If those who knew Jesus personally had little honor for him, there's going to be the strong likelihood that if you're in a position of spiritual leadership, people who are around you may very well at times have little honor for you and may actually have more honor for some internet preacher that they've never met. Did I say that out loud? Yeah, it happens. Believe it or not, I'm sure it never happens in our church. But there are churches where, you know, people actually have a higher regard for shepherds they've never met than they do for those who pour their lives into their sheep. Praise God, we don't suffer from that. Here, uh, Matthew 13, verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his own hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? 
Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and in his own household. And he did not do mighty works there because of their unbelief. Let's just say it this way. Familiarity breeds contempt. People who knew him as a boy, though they had never seen him sin. Oh, and by the way, they're astonished with his wisdom. The text just told us that. They're astonished with who he is and what he has done. Not just his works, but also his wisdom. They're amazed by that. And then they immediately say, wait a minute, isn't this that kid, you know, Mary's son, the carpenter's son? Is that who that is? You are far more likely to be critical about people that you actually know something about than you are about people that you don't know much about unless their weaknesses are just blatantly obvious. Of course, those weaknesses are easy to criticize. But in Jesus' case, there were no weaknesses. And yet still, there was an inclination to dishonor him. Jesus makes this statement in every gospel. Every gospel writer records this verbiage from Jesus. The prophet has no honor in his hometown. Matthew says, even in his own household. It is, yes, a hyperbolic statement. In other words, it wouldn't be fair or safe to say that a faithful prophet has literally zero honor where he serves. But there is the inclination for people who become familiar with faithful leaders to distrust them because familiarity breeds contempt and because the heart of man is not completely redeemed. There is the unredeemed humanity called the flesh. So there is this tendency to have a disparaging attitude even toward the faithful, maybe even especially toward the faithful, maybe even especially when the faithful are faithful by speaking the truth in love when it's hard to hear. That is most especially a time when a faithful leader would not receive honor in the moment, and the result might even be that the person who has received that loving ministry might actually turn that on that person and use it against him or her. So what was his hometown anyway? His home country. D.A. Carson says there are at least 10 different proposed solutions to the problem that this passage seems to present. What's the apparent problem? Why would Jesus say a prophet has no honor in his home country, Galilee, and then go to that very place? Why would anyone do that? Perhaps this is a reference to some other town. If so, what town? If it's not Galilee, then what town is it? Is it Bethlehem? Well, no. Bethlehem was his birthplace, but by no means is Bethlehem ever anywhere in Scripture considered to be Jesus' hometown. One of the most common proposed solutions is that the term translated as hometown, Patrice, refers to Jerusalem or Judea as his spiritual homeland, Jerusalem really being the hub of all things related to legitimate religion. Uh, perhaps 
Jerusalem or the whole of Judea is his spiritual homeland. This could make sense in light of the words in John 1 verse 11. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Further, you might even be thinking of this in Romans 11 verse 11 where Paul says of Israel, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So Jesus first went to the Jews who rejected him, and so he went with the gospel to the Gentiles, partly for the purpose of Israel's jealousy. So some might, some might look at this passage and say, well, maybe that's what was going on. Maybe Jesus' hometown is Judea, Jerusalem, and he chooses to leave there. That's kind of what verse 3 says. He leaves Judea to go to Galilee. Maybe that's the reference here, or the antecedent of the reference. So perhaps Jesus goes to Galilee in favor of his unfavorable, dishonorable experience in Jerusalem. But it wouldn't make sense that Jesus would leave his hometown to escape dishonor, to go to a place where he would receive honor. It just wasn't Jesus' character. It wasn't his M.O. to avoid places and people so as to avoid being dishonored. Some commentators propose that hometown is a reference to heaven. This is what we call allegory. You've heard that phrase in relation to hermeneutics. You allegorize the text. You make it mean something spiritual because you don't uh, arrive with any certainty to some clear interpretation, so you allegorize it. You make it mean something that it doesn't, and so you, you make it symbolism where there is no clear symbolism. This would be to spiritualize the term here if it were to mean heaven. Jesus, though, is clearly speaking of an earthly geographical location. If he weren't and he were actually speaking of heaven, there would be some evidence, and it simply isn't there. But Jesus was known as the prophet from Galilee. Matthew says in Matthew 21, verse 11, And the crowds said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. In John 7, verse 52, the Pharisees respond to Nicodemus in his defense of Jesus by saying, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So in this case, he was considered a false prophet from Galilee, but nonetheless, he was considered to be from Galilee. Also in John 1, 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So just one more factor that points to the idea that Jesus' hometown is Nazareth. So he's referring to Nazareth of Galilee as his home country. And while they welcome him, it's a dishonorable welcome. And just so you know, in each of the Gospels where this phrase is used by Jesus, that a prophet has no honor in his hometown, it's clear he's actually 
speaking about Nazareth in those texts, there's no debate, there's no dispute, no one would argue that he's referring to someplace else when he calls Nazareth his hometown in those texts. But as I said, they welcome him, the Galileans welcome him, but it's a dishonorable welcome. They aren't welcoming the Messiah who has come to save the world, they're welcoming the miracle worker. They're welcoming the one who does signs and wonders. They want to see signs. It's a flattering welcome. It's a welcome of flattery. Verse 45 says, So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So go back to chapter 2. I'd encourage you to turn in your Bibles back to chapter 2, verse 23, where it says, Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is, of course, Jesus maintained omniscience. We speak of Jesus setting aside his deified prerogatives. He did that in a partial way. In this moment, he knew what was in man's mind. He knew what was in the mind of those to whom he spoke and those who came to him. But they came to him really with a partial, non-salvific belief. Jesus knew the heart of man. He knew of the dishonorable motives behind man's pretentious display of good works rooted in selfish attitudes. This is why over and over and over, and if you haven't gone back and listened to him, if you haven't had an opportunity, listen to our series on the doctrines of grace. Uh, We devoted the entire month of October in light of the celebration of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation to look at what Scripture says about this. Man's absolute greatest problem, misconception of who he is, a misconception of the depth of his sinful condition. There's no measuring the extent to which man has gone to whitewash the significance of man's natural-born condition as well as his culpability for his sinful condition and the consequences of his sin. Jesus knew this about man. He knew the heart of man. Now, this was in Cana. After he had displayed his sovereignty over time, John 2, he miraculously accelerated the winemaking process by producing the richest, sweetest, most enjoyable, most satisfying wine in the history of the world. Then, cleansing the temple, his father's house, of the money-making profiteers who were using it to extort money from Jews who had come from throughout the world to sacrifice, many of whom would not have had the ability to bring their own animals to sacrifice and would therefore need to purchase them there. So Jesus cleansed his father's house, not of a few people, but of most certainly hundreds and very likely thousands of people. One man can't do that, right? unless a miracle takes place. And we forget that. It's so easy to forget that about the cleansing of the temple. Jesus didn't run out 25 or 50 people. Thousands of people who were there to sacrifice, many of whom were there to take advantage financially of those who couldn't do anything about it. Literally, highway robbery. So as one man, he ran out thousands of people from the temple area. It was a miracle only possible to be accomplished by the God-man. And so the Galileans, our text this morning tells us, were there. They observed these works, these signs, these wonders. And so that's their motivation. 
when we see here this morning what we're calling a dishonorable welcome, it was rooted in their having observed some measure of Jesus' ability to perform miracles, and that's what they wanted. They wanted more of that. They wanted what you might call the show. You see, Nicodemus is being addressed by the Pharisees. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So again, there's a testimony in Cana that Jesus has performed these miracles. The miracle of turning the water into wine was a private miracle, but word would have gotten out. The text, as you remember, will tell us that the servants were aware of what was going on, but others were not. Certain people knew, certain people didn't know, but word would have gotten out. Same with the other miracles. And so word has gotten out to the degree that Nicodemus is saying to Jesus, we know of these great things that you have done such that it has led us to believe that you are from God. He also performed other signs, and the Galileans were enamored by this, but only because of the excitement of it all, not because he was the Christ who came to save the lost from their sins, but because of the euphoria of the miraculous experience. They did not honor him. They only wanted more of what they had seen at the feast. They only wanted more of the show. He was the prophet who had no honor in his hometown. This was a dishonorable response to the Savior's arrival and really a dishonorable welcome. Well, point number two, I want you to see a desperate appeal to the Savior's power in verses 46 to 49. The text says, So he came to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So this was a remarkable display of desperation in light of the power Jesus had displayed in his previous visit to Cana. This man is some sort of government official. We don't know what. text doesn't tell us. He holds some power and prestige, probably worked for Herod. So much power and prestige that for him to travel the 20 or so miles of difficult terrain by foot would have been less than dignified. This man was desperate. He's a big shot, reduced to a beggar. No amount of governmental prestige or earthly power could help him now. He needed a miracle. He needed the healing power of this famous miracle worker. At first, there's no apparent distinction between this man's attitude from that of the other Galileans other than obvious desperation. His son was dying even near death. The prospect of losing a child's life for most parents would usher in a near hopeless desperation, hoping to cling to any and every strain of potential power that might save the child's life. This is, of course, normal and very natural. Kimberly and I have been through our share of lengthy overnight stays in the local pediatric hospital. Our first three children each in their infancy spent about a week on 
separate occasions in the children's ICU with severe respiratory problems. If you have any sense for the power that the Savior holds, such an experience will prove your desperation, and it should develop your prayer life. When uh, my Cole was barely two years old, a doctor discovered a mass in his chest. Desperate and scared, we listened closely as a doctor simply said to us, well, it's not leukemia and it's not Hodgkin's disease, and then walked out the door. (laughs) Quite desperate and quite scared, we looked at each other and had no idea what to think about that. It sounded good in one way, but of course it sounded very uncertain in another. We didn't know what that might mean, and we couldn't have imagined at all, medically, what it might mean. But we knew that the Savior had spared him in a previous seeming near-death experience with a respiratory problem. We knew that he had saved our older son, Dawson, in a similar situation. And so we looked at each other and we reminded ourselves that we'd seen God exercise his sovereignty in plenty of circumstances in other people's lives. And so we prayed. We looked to the Savior whose power we had seen. We had seen him heal our children, and we knew he could. This man led to a desperate appeal to the Savior's power and awareness himself of the signs that had been displayed would certainly have caused him to at least think perhaps this man can provide hope. Perhaps the power that he has displayed is such that he can do something. Verse 48 says, So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. This is a rebuke. You know, this might not seem real timely. Here, this poor, dear man is asking for help. He's crying out for help in light of his desperate need, and he's most certainly crying out for help in light of his conviction, at least, that this man can provide help. And Jesus says to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, Come down. Come down before my child dies. Please come to Capernaum. I don't know about this belief, but I know my son is dying in Capernaum, and I know you can save him if you will go there. So he's desperate. This is one of those texts that really, if we will read it slowly and carefully and prayerfully, will literally bring us to the place where we acknowledge that these are real people. So often, so easy for us because Scripture was recorded so many, many years ago to forget the fact that the characters that that we see are people with real hearts and real dilemmas and real tragedies and a real hunger for hope. And they should not be removed so far from us and our own lives that we might not be affected by them. My hope, as I said earlier, would be that you would be deeply impacted by Christ in this text of Scripture This morning, this dear man just wants his son to be okay. He wants him to live. But Jesus declares a correction. This man's desperate, but Jesus clarifies the difference between desperation and belief. 
And that's sometimes the challenge you and I need. Don't assume that your desperate cries are necessarily an expression of belief. Test your heart. Ask others to help you test your heart. While the man displayed desperation, he by no means displayed belief in the Savior. But Jesus declares a correction, even a rebuke. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. You see, this man's attitude was distinctly different from the attitude of the centurion in Luke chapter 7, verse 6. And Jesus went with them when he was not far from the house. The centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. That's quite a statement, is it not? Jesus himself saying of this man, not even in Israel have I seen such utter trust. You want an example of what your faith, my faith should look like? The centurion is it. (laughs) When you find yourself distrusting Christ, read about the centurion. Plead with God to give you that kind of eyes-wide-open faith, not blind faith, that's totally different, eyes-wide-open faith that acknowledges what Jesus has said, what God has said about him in his word, what you have seen that he has performed in his word, but also what you know he has performed in your life, as well as that of others. This is an unquestioning faith. Now hear me when I tell you, The deeper you go doctrinally, the more you will be challenged to abandon your faith. Romans 9. Paul says, who are you, O man, to question why? Don't let there be a bifurcation, a separation between the things that are seemingly easier to believe and those things that are most difficult to believe. This is why we have said time and time and time and time again. The deeper truths of the person of God are the foundation upon which everything else lies. And if you're only willing to believe those things that are easy for you to comprehend and refuse to believe the deeper truths of the word of the Lord, you will never be of use to anyone who is struggling with a potential loss of a child. You might be of use to someone who's struggling with a not-so-difficult trial because you can take them to the more shallow issues in the Word. But if you abandon, really reject the deeper truths of Scripture, specifically, as we see in this text, Christ's sovereignty over life. The psalmist tells us, your days are numbered, my days are numbered. 
We rest in him because he's sovereign, not because everything he says immediately fits our limited cerebral ability. We trust him because of who he says he is. The centurion displays real belief, real faith. I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. But here in John 4, Jesus was casting an indictment on all of Galilee as much as this one man. This is where grammar becomes really important. It's really important everywhere in Scripture. But specifically here, the you is plural. It's not singular. Unless you, right? He's not just speaking to this man. Unless you, plural, see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And remember, the Galilean's welcome was a dishonorable welcome focused on his miracles, not his power to save. They were not interested in a powerful Christology, only a powerful experience. They didn't want the person of Christ. They wanted the power of Christ. We'll see more of this in chapter 6, where Jesus further explains that he is the bread of life, and many do not understand him. In verse 63 of chapter 6, he says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. See, it's these deeper truths that turn the false convert away. The deeper truth that you see in this text this morning, though it's in narrative expression, it's narrative literature, it's not the didactic teaching of Romans 9 that kind of really punches you in the throat. This does more of a a long-term work on your heart. You have to look closely. You have to read it again and again. You have to see what's happening in the text. You have to acknowledge the fact that Christ is, in fact, sovereign over it all. And you've got to challenge yourself with regard to whether or not you trust in this Christ. Maybe you're a faithful, long-term servant here, and you tell people, you know, we have a high view of God's Word. Praise God for that. I'm so grateful for that. But if that's the extent of it, you know, if that's where it ends, if it's not manifesting itself in a willingness to receive the afflictions that come as a result of God's sovereign decree, as if they are the result of God's sovereign decree, then don't expect that the Lord's going to produce in you the kind of trust that enables you to have deep, penetrating, lasting impact on the people that you so deeply love and want to see come to know Christ. It's these deeper truths that force us to reckon with whether or not we really trust savingly, really dependently in the person of Christ. So we've looked at a dishonorable welcome. First seems like it might be an honorable welcome, but it's not. Jesus even says a prophet has no honor in his own town. He's talking about Galilee. So they extend a dishonorable welcome 
in the Savior's arrival. Next, we looked at a desperate appeal to the Savior's power, and that's really all it was in that moment when this government official expresses an interest in really some measure of hope that Jesus would save his son. Third, I want you to see a determined belief in the Savior's words. A determined belief in the Savior's words. Verse 50 says, Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. This is much like James 2. And I'd ask you to turn there with me for a moment, James 2. And I think you see at least the budding of James 2 belief. Uh, Let me ask you to be careful about one more thing. Be careful that you don't judge this man in light of the most mature Christian that you know today. So easy to do that. Well, I know believers who are a whole lot more sacrificial and faithful and trusting than this guy. He's an infant. If he's a believer, if he becomes a believer in this text, and I think it's obvious that he does, he's a brand new believer. So for you and I to say, well, we have a high view of God's word. We have a high view of the gospel. We have a high view of God. We are so focused on these things. But this guy, this guy's shallow. He's a baby. So be careful that you don't place some test upon him that's not fair. You're very likely going to be inclined to do that with others who newly and freshly come to know Christ, if you're willing to do that to someone in Scripture, about whom it's so obvious he's a brand new believer and not a long-term mature believer. I think as a church, that's something we could really, really work on. We could work harder to be the, the nurturing caretaking, mature believers that acknowledge that new Christians are new Christians. And so they need nurture. They need far less challenging with regard to their conduct than they do teaching and counseling and administrative leadership in their lives to help them develop a system of spiritual growth. James 2.14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. If there's ever a passage that you memorized in a flash, it was this. Faith without, de- uh, faith without works is dead. I, I think I might have memorized it too, but it doesn't sound like it. Faith without works is dead. And that adds up. You know, the common phrase in our culture is the idea that that everyone understands. Actions speak a lot louder than words, but words are important. And actions are important. We're predestined not only for salvation, but also for good works. All that by grace through faith, but we are predestined for both. And we're told to work out our salvation. It's to be done with good works. As a result of having been saved, we will want to work not only to do good for others, but to work on our sanctification. And here, in James 2, you get a really clear theological, doctrinal expression of what that looks like. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So you don't want to be the person who has works without faith. 
You want to be the person who has works because of his faith, which, by the way, is a gift. God grants you faith. The result is that you work because of it. Verse 19, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now, this passage is often misused, and it's not the worst heresy of all time. But many people will say, well, even the demons believe in the gospel. That's not what the text says. The point is that the demons believe that God is one. The demons believe in the one true God. They have a sound theology proper, and they shudder. James is, in a sense, saying... So what? The demons believe and the demons fear God, but really unless you fear God and show that fear by obeying him, your faith is dead. Verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Michael read to us from Genesis 15 this morning, the passage from which James quotes here. Abraham believed, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So what in the world is James talking about here? He's saying that faith without works is dead. Faith granted by the Lord results in works. Verse 25 in James 2, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And your Roman Catholic friend who wants to use this passage to persuade you to believe that works result in justification simply needs a quick reading of Romans 4. In light of James, go back and forth between the two passages. You really don't need to go to Romans 4 to see this, but clearly what James is saying here is you must have faith. He doesn't say anything about works resulting in justification. The point is that you are justified in the eyes of those who look on. They look at you and they say, oh, that's a person who has faith because of his works. That's what we are beginning to see in this official whose son was about to die. He believes in the Savior's words. It's a determined belief. It's a belief that's so determined that the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. He believed it. It was a true belief. I think you'll see his belief progress. But in the moment, what you see is a determined belief. What do I mean by that? He turned and walked away. He heard Jesus say what Jesus said, and he walked away saying, Jesus has said it, I believe it, I'm on my way. William Barclay has said about this, he had faith enough to turn and walk back that 20-mile road with nothing but Jesus' assurance to comfort his heart. Shouldn't that be enough? Shouldn't that be enough? Should be, and it often is. If you're in Christ, you've experienced this. You've 
read the Word of God, you've examined closely what Jesus has said about this. You've gone to someone for counsel, someone who will bring the Word of God to you, not someone who would bring psychology to you, but they're going to tell you the truth. You know they're going to tell you the truth. You sit down, you look at the Word together. They remind you of what the Lord has said in His Word. You're encouraged, and you walk away with a determined belief. Barclay says the only way really to enter into them is to believe in them with the clutching intensity of a drowning man. He's talking about the commands or the promises of the Lord. The only way to really experience them is to experience them in desperation. That's what this official is being challenged with. Son's about to die. He's desperate. Barclay says, if Jesus says a thing, it is not a case of it may be true. It is a case of it must be true. He believed him. He went on his way. He set his mind and his feet back to Capernaum where his little boy was. So we've looked at a determined belief in the Savior's words. And I don't want to make light of it. I, I, don't, I hope you don't think I'm being sarcastic. I'm really not. When, when I say I love the fact that we as a church are so passionately and vocally committed to the Word of God. You know, churches should be challenged with regard to that declaration. If that truly is, you know, what you'd call a core value of a church, it's, it's going to be obvious the people who are involved in that church are going to display a devotion to that. It's going to be clear. There's going to be growth in depth. And so I'm really, really grateful for the fact that that is most certainly true about us. But it's not enough. So I asked the question earlier, shouldn't that be enough? And what I meant by that was, shouldn't it be enough to hear God's word and act on it? And some of you nodded your heads. Yes, probably all of you would if I asked for that. But it's not enough to display legitimate, dependent belief. I think it could be, well, the beginning moments of saving faith, but it's not enough to display saving faith long term. The fourth thing I want you to see is a dependent belief in the Savior's works. A dependent belief in the Savior's works. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This is a new belief. This is a different belief. There was a determined belief. This is a dependent belief. Warren Wiersbe speaks of these four categories of belief as crisis belief, right? Crisis belief, there's a desperate experience. What do I do? Where do I go? How am I going to 
survive. Seems impossible. Second, he says there's a confident belief. There's a confident belief. The man heard Jesus' words and he, and he moved. He walked. He did something. Wiersbe then says there's a confirmed belief. A confirmed belief. Confirmed in that when he arrives home, his servants meet him and say, the fever's gone. And so that belief reveals a pathway unto a deeper belief that ultimately shows itself confirmed. And then Wearsby says there's a contagious belief. A contagious belief. He himself believed in all his household. You might not have thought so upon a first reading, but this, much like our last text regarding the Samaritan woman, is an evangelistic text. The point of this story is not the healing of a little boy. Certainly the healing of the little boy displays the sovereign power and mercy of the Savior. That the Savior could heal a little boy in Capernaum while he's in Cana ought to motivate you and me to trust him that he could heal you in Redlands from heaven. But we so often forget We so easily get caught up in the difficulty of the moment. In the last month, I have personally observed the Lord produce reconciliation between people in the most unlikely impossible circumstances. In one case where Kimberly and I prayed for 14 years. And I I confess, you know, along the way I would say, you know, I know the Lord can do this. I, I know that He can. And yet I was shocked when He did it. And even recently in our own church, as I sat with other elders and we've prayed, we've striven, we've pleaded, and we've concluded that the Lord did a work that only the Lord could do. And I sit back and I, I acknowledge that so often my belief is determined, but not really dependent. And it's those moments during which the Lord shows himself to be a God of sovereign grace, a God of the deeper theology of the Bible that forces us to assess whether or not we trust him dependently or determinedly. Barclay says about this, 
He was not a man who got out of Christ what he wanted and then went away to forget. He and all his household believed. He had a contagious evangelistic impact on his family. This story makes you think of Thomas, doesn't it? One of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. You know how the story goes. Jesus does exactly that. He provides that exact experience that Thomas asked for. And then he says to him, Jesus, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Men, you and I especially must ask, is our belief in the Savior having such an impact on our families? How is your household, your wife, your children? How are they believing in light of your belief? Do you have a determined belief that shows itself in action? It's good. It's good. But do you have a dependent belief that shows itself and trust. Are you that rock to which your wife can look in the most difficult of moments? Because you will express a dependent belief. Father, we rest in Jesus Christ. We pray for a determined belief that results in our willingness to respond in action. But we plead with you for a dependent belief displayed in daily trust that nurtures a saving belief in our wives and in our children. Lord, we ask that for everyone in our church, that our belief would be a dependent belief. Much like this official who not only believed what Jesus said, but believed in what he could do. We ask these things in Jesus' name.